At Push My Buttons Podcast, you can get all the gaming news, as well as information on latest releases and game reviews. You can also watch us play some of your favorite games, everything from Sonic the Hedgehog to God of War, on YouTube and Twitch. Follow us on all the social media and listen on all of your favorite apps. Just search for Push My Buttons Podcast. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a... Well, the owner of a comic book store. Trust me, true believer. Well, Jagger and me, we had a running contest to see who had the most comic books in the world. Whatever, my escape was, um, comic books. Net profit to me, negative $59. I love the comics because of the brightness displayed by the fellows who drew them. They remained with me always, and when comic books first came into being, it drew me to them. Tales from the Comic Shop. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Comic Shop. I'm your host, Joe, and today I'm joined by Eddie D'Angelini and Kristen Parez. Hey, I'm Eddie D'Angelini, co-owner of Heidi Ho Comics, and now formerly the co-manager of Heidi Ho Comics. Uh, Stepped aside to let someone else manage the shop and keep it in their capable hands. But I'm also the writer, artist, and creator of the comic strip Collectors. Hey, everyone. My name is Kristen Perez, and I am also co-owner of Heidi Ho Comics, and I am still managing the shop on a day-to-day basis. I also have a podcast all about comics. It's called Comadres y Comics, and it highlights the female and Latinx presence in the comic book industry as creators, characters, and fans. Welcome to the show, Kristen. Um, so this week we're going to start off with some somber news. Unfortunately, Chadwick Boseman, the actor who played Black Panther, Jackie Robinson, James Brown, among numerous other roles, passed away this week on the 27th of August uh, from colon cancer. He had been fighting against it, we found out, for four years. So that means that he filmed Infinity War, Civil War, Black Panther and Endgame all while he was fighting colon cancer. It's just a humongous loss to uh, everyone, but in particular to minority superhero fans. I have seen dozens of pictures of kids having action figure funerals in the last few days. Groups have put a moratorium on selling Chadwick autographs online, or the good ones have, because people have been trying to take advantage of that. It's just devastating news. The tributes have been very touching. I mean, I obviously didn't know him personally, but from what I gather, the man seemed very well loved by his community. Eddie, Kristen, you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah. First off, I did my own tribute to him in my comic strip collectors Sunday morning this past Sunday. And also, Kristen and I did watch... Black Panther on TV uh, the other night. And I just, I I realized something. I mean, looking back, none of us knew he was sick. Nobody knew. Um, I told uh, another friend of mine that he pulled a Bowie. He uh, told nobody and just kept working until literally he was gone. And I realized something when we were watching Black Panther, that movie came out in 2018. So he was probably filming it, uh, depending on when it came out, filming it sometime 
2017, maybe even in 2018. And he was diagnosed back in 2016, which means even with colon cancer, I mean, if you look at his physique in that film, especially when they're doing the, the ritual fight in the beginning. Yeah, um, no, it's it's unbelievable the, yeah. that he was able to maintain that shape. It's he, he obviously, like all the other Marvel actors, was undertaking a grueling physical training, not only to learn how to fight, but also to get in the kind of shape that uh, they like to portray these superhero characters in, you know, with both uh, grueling physical training and dieting. And he was doing that with colon cancer. And I found that just utterly amazing that he was able to do that. So that's a testament to his work ethic and his willpower and his apparently I read that during filming of Black Panther, he was also dealing with chemo and surgeries before the movie. Yeah. So that's I mean, and uh, my dad who passed away from cancer, I saw what chemo did to you. Uh, you know, he was okay, like for maybe a day or two after, and then it just hits you and wipes you out and makes you so incredibly tired to where you just don't even want to move. And he obviously was still working even under, under those conditions. And I know Kristen recorded her podcast yesterday and I ho- overheard her have uh, make some pretty uh, interesting observations regarding Chadwick in the Black Panther movie. And, and definitely I'd like her to repeat those now. Yeah, during our podcast yesterday, I just really highlighted the fact that Black Panther, the comic character, came out during a time where in the United States, Jim Crow laws were still in effect in many places in the nation. And to have a black main character, titular character, actually be a character with powers and also a character that is the king of the most wealthy nation and not just financially wealthy, but technologically wealthy was a big deal. So to actually in, in this 21st century to still have a lot of the, the race relation issues that um, were present back then be present now and to have Black Panther, the movie being made and being premiered with a black director, a primarily black cast, that was a big deal. I remember when Eddie and I went to uh, see the movie and it wasn't even the premiere, but when you look back at pictures of the premiere, there are black fans and just even actors who were there just in dressed to the nines in African regalia and just the the pride that they had to be able to see themselves on screen in a role to see to see a, a black man and just a black country in a in a way that was not just inspirational, but this was something that Chadwick himself said in an interview. It was aspirational to see them smart and to see themselves um, successful and not as the stereotypical criminal. That means a lot to the Black community. And I think that that's what we're seeing right now, Joe, when you're mentioning the kids mourning the death, um, you're you're seeing them mourning the the just this idea of this amazing just 
idea and character that they matter and that they belong and that they deserve to be seen in this way. And so I definitely think that this death is going to continue to affect not just fans, comic fans, but just the Black community as a whole. Because just as a retailer, I know that we had we had customers come into the shop, Black customers who'd never set foot into a comic book shop before, let alone even picked up a comic book prior to the news of uh, Black Panther uh, being made or even when it was premiered. And the fact that ta Coates was the writer of the book at the time was also a big deal because ta is a, a big social justice writer and he's well known in the Black community. And that movie in and of itself really um, called the Black community into a um, into the comic community, a place where um, 100% they probably didn't feel welcomed as much as what uh, other groups feel. So definitely this is a huge loss and the legacy that Chadwick is leaving behind is definitely uh, going to be remembered for a long time. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. We did our last episode was actually titled Representation Matters. And um, I won't dive back into it. But if you haven't listened to it, you should go listen to it because it's I'm just extremely proud of that episode. It came out as well as I could have hoped for. And um, our guest, Ryan, really hit the nail on the head of just about what how important this art can be to somebody who feels completely isolated and alone, and especially in their teenage years or uh, tween years. So this is, I don't want it to be crass, but Black Panther is a huge intellectual property. I mean, the movie made over a billion dollars. There's no way Disney can just let it fall by the wayside, no matter how, uh, how much you don't want to continue without Chadwick. I've seen that they've been talking about recasting potential actors, which is interesting, but an idea that I have seen the fan community grab onto a lot of is to not recast T'Challa and let Shuri pick up the Black Panther mantle. How would you all feel about that? I think that would be fantastic. I think that there was already talk of that even before this happened, uh, that eventually T'Challa would step aside and she would take over, just like in the comic book storyline. So I, I have no problem with that. I thought that that was a great idea long before. Yeah, I mean, it's canon. And regardless, we're going to see people come out waving their anti-SJW sticks at it. But uh, if you're actually reading comics or you've read the comics, that's canon. So I wouldn't have a problem with that at all. Yeah, no, I agree. I I would love to see little girl, little black girls have that same moment that little black boys had in 2018 with T'Challa. I mean, obviously I'd prefer that Chadwick was still here to reprise the role, but left in the situation we are in, I personally feel like Shuri would be the way to go for the next movie. I'm not saying you can't recast T'Challa eventually. I'm just saying that for me right now, I'd like to see Chadwick's legacy honored a little bit in the next movie. That might include giving him, giving T'Challa a, a send off and moving the mantle over to Shuri. So in lighter news, since our last episode, DC Fandom happened. It has been, I mean, I believe there was over 20 million people watching it online at a time. So that's, I mean, those are ridiculous numbers for a streaming and con. I don't, I don't even know what you call it. It's sales pitch. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, you know the big things that came out of it the batman trailer i was cautiously optimistic about the batman casting i personally don't see a problem with robert pattinson playing a sparkly vampire and batman i know a lot of people do have a problem with that but you know i mean he's an actor and an actor should be able to inhabit many different characters and hats and roles I always was a I was a fan of his portrayal of Cedric and Harry Potter, so uh, I, I know he can act a little bit. The preview, though, it was everything as a Batman fan I wanted and more. The preview looked great. As far as casting him as Batman, I personally I reserve opinion until I'm actually sitting in the theater and watching the movie. Uh, it, I I don't subscribe to the idea of let's all poop on an actor before we've even seen the film because we've gone through this over and over with so many other uh, actors that were cast in superhero roles. And most of the times everyone's opinion changed once the movie came out and they saw it. So let's all relax. Yeah, I know. The, let's wait for the movie to come out and let's just all go watch it and enjoy it and then decide. Uh, the only Batman actor I can ever remember the fans getting behind after the casting announcement was George Clooney. And we saw how that turned out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Robert Pattinson has been very active uh, in the in the indie uh, realm of movies, and he's gotten a lot of accolades for the work that he's done. So my hopes are high for what he's going to do with Batman. So I I'm actually looking forward to it. And this yeah, is coming and- from not a Twilight fan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm super happy too with a lot of the other cast. Like I think Zoe Kravitz was the perfect pick to play yes. Catwoman. I loved her. She was one of the highlights of Fury Road for me. She's been in a lot of other stuff, and I know she can pull this role off. And I like that it's also having a black Catwoman gives a little bit of a throwback to Eartha Kitt, which she doesn't get enough credit for what she meant she brought to that role. Another black actress that brought representation to people. But yeah, no, Batman looks amazing as far as I'm concerned. I'm completely all, I'm sold. I'm all in on this movie. Take take all my money <laughs> as a Batman fan. I mean, because you know, I'm a primarily a Batman fan. And uh, so it's very important to me that these movies are, uh, are done well. <laughs> the Suicide Squad from James Gunn. I know you haven't seen that trailer. You should go watch it. Because... No, I haven't. I, I Batman... actually saw it. Okay. What did you think? Because I'm also all in on that. Uh, I thought it was a lot of, of, I'm actually not a Suicide Squad movie fan, but I'm a Suicide Squad comic fan, and I never saw any other Suicide uh, Squad movie, but this actually really piqued my interest, and it looked really awesome, and I am also, uh, full transparency, not a big DC fan. Um, My interests totally lie in Marvel, in all my comic reading and movie watching. But this actually looked like something that I definitely would want to go see. Um, uh, Gun, I mean, being behind it, I think also gives it a lot of credibility as well. Okay, yeah. So Harley Quinn is obviously, I mean, Margot Robbie is the it actress of the moment i think that's pretty indisputable and but harley quinn's a very polarizing character i know there's a lot of people who have a lot of issues with her i'm a big fan of harley quinn post joker yeah i like harley quinn a lot because she deals with a lot of issues that hit home for me 
also though she's just a much more interesting character by herself or with ivy than she was with joker and birds of prey for me was just i get that a lot of people don't like that it's not comic the birds aren't comic accurate but it's a movie it's not a comic and for me that's fine and that movie was a home run in my Mm -hmm. opinion um it's a tribute to the genre movies that I grew up loving, Assault on Precinct 13, The Warriors. It's the movie that Quentin Tarantino tried to make with Death Proof. And I love Death Proof. It's a great movie. I love Rosara Dawson. I'll watch anything she's in. But Death Proof kind of failed to deliver on a few notes. And I think Birds of Prey knocked them out of the park. Also, Ewan McGregor in that movie is a force of nature. He's, he's, he's just amazing as Black Mask. I bring that up because I feel like they didn't focus much on Harley in the preview. And they and I think view Birds of Pay as a box office failure. And I'm wondering if the reason she was less focused on in the preview is because of that. That makes perfect sense to me. I actually didn't see Birds of Prey, but it makes sense to me that if the um, if the big studio thinks that it was a bomb, that they would lessen their their um spotlight on her but that's too bad because i've heard from a lot of other fans too that that movie was really great also keep in mind too that sometimes when you see a preview a preview is cut to make a movie look a certain way but that isn't necessarily what the focus or the theme of the movie might even be it's just cut to kind of like fit a certain audience at the time of that preview so who knows you might get something slightly different than what you see in the preview and sometimes previews end up giving the whole movie away. You see the best stuff all in the preview and you think, well, why do I need to see the movie now? So it's hard to judge a movie completely just by the preview. Absolutely. But regardless, Suicide Squad trailer knocked it out of the park for me. I couldn't be more excited about it. And then the one panel that I watched was the Wonder Woman 84 panel. And, and I hear you weren't too thrilled by that. So I don't do crowds. I don't like crowds. It triggers my anxiety. <laughs> um, so I don't really go to big cons. Like if I had sat in a line for five, six, eight hours to watch this panel with, I mean, huge stars, Chris Pine, Kristen Wiig, uh, Gal Gadot, Patty yes, Jenkins, oh you know, humongous names. And it's just, it's, there's no real pertinent information. Everything feels packaged and like practiced. The pre-screened questions from the fans are just not interesting. Not what I want to hear about. Well, um, and also you're talking about actors that have probably already been on more than a couple dozen press junkets for this movie and have been asked the same questions over and over. And they pretty much have just answered the same way over and over and over. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, so that was, um, you know, it was disappointing in my opinion. But again, I'm not, you know, I'm not a huge, I'm not super knowledgeable about what those panels are supposed to be like because I've never staked out and gone to sit through one. We tend to, well, at least me, not necessarily Kristen, but I tend to uh, avoid those panels at San Diego because... I also don't want to deal with the crowds. I don't want to stand in line for the entire day for an hour panel and lose literally an entire day of Comic-Con just standing in line. A lot of times even in the hot sun or overnight. I just, I don't get the appeal of it. If I want to see the panel, more than likely I'll watch it on YouTube the Monday after Comic-Con 
and you know, in the comfort of my own home rather than waiting in line all day. So I got to admit, I just, I don't get those big panels at all, but I think Kristen's got a different viewpoint on this. Well, I'm sorry that you both are fake fanboys. I have slept in the marina for Hall H line to get into Hall H. I was in line at 11 p.m. on Thursday night to see a panel at 2 p.m. Friday. And that was the only way that I got in sleeping overnight after two years of failure of standing in the Hall H line for eight plus hours and still not getting in and missing my panel. So I love doing that. I actually love it. It's part of the experience for me. I can understand someone who doesn't like crowds too, that it wouldn't appeal to them. But I love the people I meet in line. We have a fun time. Um, I even love complaining about (laughs) being in line. It's just part of the Comic-Con experience to me. Um, And when I actually do succeed in getting into the panel, it just makes it even that much better. I don't care how freaking boring it is. I'm going to love it no matter what. (laughs) This woman is crazy. (laughs) Can we talk about what I feel is probably the one big glaring omission of all of this? Yeah. Why don't you go ahead, Eddie? It's great seeing all these trailers uh, of all the upcoming movies and video games and everything that DC is putting out. But the big question was, where are the comics? Unfortunately, it feels like DC has become a big IP farm and the comics, the print side, the creators of those comics just seem to be forgotten. They almost seem just a second thought, almost unimportant. And it's kind of upsetting that uh, DC puts on a big streaming event like this. And unfortunately, there's just not even any mention or any tribute or anything to it. It's, It's really upsetting for someone like myself as a retailer and as a comic book fan to see that part, that side of it, not even being represented even the slightest. And the movies are great. love seeing them, but really it's just an extension of the comic books that we love. So uh, it's really upsetting to not see those being represented. Yeah, no, I agree. There is a second DC fandom coming up. I'm not sure what the exact date is. I believe it's in September. And I know that they didn't talk about comics and they didn't talk about the CW shows or the DC Universe mm-hmm. or the HBO Max stuff. I know why they wanted to avoid comics. They wanted to avoid comics because they didn't want to talk about the big purge they just had at uh, DC. I'm, I'm sure of that. Also, I think, you know, I I agree it's a little disrespectful, though, for them to do something like this and not talk about comics at all. I heard, I didn't see it, but I heard they did a Legacy of Batman panel, and they didn't have any comic book people on it at all. You would think that that would be the perfect panel to have some of the legendary creators that are still with us that contributed to uh, the Legacy of Batman, but they don't seem to be... I guess they did have Jim Lee on that panel. He was the one comic person. Yeah, but, but is, is um, he there as a creator that it was involved with Batman or as, you know, the suit representing DC Comics? Yeah, it sounds like he was there more in an executive capacity. Exactly. But I, I, again, I didn't watch it, so I don't know. I mean, I kind of feel for Jim Lee right now. He's definitely kind of in a rock and a hard place because... Oh, definitely. he He's being asked to 
kind of captain a sinking ship right now because they are getting no help from the executive side. And he's trying to put a positive spin on it because, you know, that's what his bosses are telling him to do. Well, and, yeah. You know, you got you got to do what your bosses tell you to do. And not, um, only, I, not I, only that, but him still being involved with DC, it, I'm sure is because he loves the company. He loves the characters and he loves comics. And he might feel like he's like one of the lone voices left that is championing that side of the company. And if you were to leave, it might fully be erased. And, you know, we've talked about this kind of thing, the whole DC thing on previous episodes, and anybody can go back and listen to what our theories are as far as what DC is doing, why they're doing it, and where they're heading. And maybe on the second fandom they're doing, maybe they will include comics in there along with TV and the other stuff that they've got coming. But the fact that they would make a big deal about the first one being all about the films and leading with that, I think, tells you what their priorities are and what is really important to them in this, in, in owning DC. And unfortunately, it kind of just corroborates a lot of the things that we've said on this show in the past as far as what is important to the owners of DC and where they're taking the print side of things. And unfortunately, it doesn't really look that that encouraging for a comic book fan and readers. No, I agree. I mean, have a hard time believing that books like Superman – Action Comics, Detective Comics, Batman, and Wonder Woman will ever go out of print completely. Oh, I'm sure they but won't. Like, I'm sure they won't, but I think that a lot of other ones may take on different formats. Maybe the print side of things, and we've talked about this for, uh, before, will stop being printed monthly. Maybe they'll be printed quarterly. Maybe there's going to be books that go into original graphic novels. But the whole idea that on DC's side – for the owners, uh, AT&T and Warner Brothers, I think they're looking at the monthly floppies and thinking that this is just, its this is a loss. It's just too much work for too little return, and we don't want to do this anymore. And they seem to be steering uh, the company into a direction where they they won't be doing that much anymore. But hey, yeah, you can go no, back what, and listen to previous episodes of this podcast and get a better idea of what we're talking about. Yeah, no, and what you're saying makes a lot of sense. The last thing I'm going to say about DC Fandom was on the Friday before Fandom, they announced that Affleck and Michael Keaton had signed contracts to be in the untitled, unscheduled Flash movie starring Ezra Miller. Presumably, Affleck will be reprising his role as Bruce Wayne, and so will Michael Keaton. I have recently gone back and watched the Keaton movies, and... You know, they don't hold up as well as you would hope. They're still, you know, quite entertaining. I still think the penguin in Batman Returns has the cutest genocide plan of all time when he straps rockets to penguins. But one thing that really stood out to me watching these movies is Batman looks more like Batmite in those movies. I mean, <laughs> he spends half the movie on an apple crate, you can tell, because... Uh, He's standing. He's he's partnered with two very tall women <laughs> in those roles, and um, yeah, his ears are definitely a little bit shorter. Yeah, uh, I th there's a line. Uh, you're telling me there's a six foot bat running around Gotham, and I thought, no, the detective should reply, no, there's a five foot nine one. <laughs> <laughs> so, Affleck and Keaton coming back, so that's exciting. Yeah, unpopular opinion time from me. 
I can't stand the Keaton Batman movies. I really can't stand them. I I don't get why people like them. Uh, that's just oh, me. that's just my the villains. It's the I, villains. I saw the first one when it came out and was so excited, and I left completely disappointed. Really? Yes. To me, I still think Jack Nicholson's the best Joker. I went in expecting something akin to Frank Miller's Year One. Yeah, I, I get that. And, and um, I came out with having watched somebody turning the the um, the lightness knob down and just doing a darker 1960s goofy TV show Batman is what it the, felt like. The camp, the camp is definitely there in those movies. Um, and, you know, Burton's talked about he's not a comic book fan. And I think that was a big problem with I the movies. So. That, but – Nick Nicholson has got Nicholson got the uh, 1980s Joker like vi- the 70s 80s Joker vibe more than like he's the most comic accurate Joker out of all of them to me um maybe but I still I still think Nicholson that- just really like I mean well, like the the way that Nicholson like when he fries the guy with the joy buzzer that's that's a trope straight out of the comics of that era I think at least well, for me my opinion, I think Jack Nicholson was just playing Jack Nicholson, to be honest with you. And <laughs> I don't think that I don't think that a realistic screen joker came along until Heath Ledger. One thing that I really noticed about Batman, you know, it won an Academy Award for sets, and the set design in that movie is amazing. I think I don't I think I don't think anyone will dispute that. But one thing that I found funny was, you know, the there was crazy art. If you watch the movie and you just watch the walls, the art in that movie is fascinating. And the only place where the art wasn't interesting and was really boring is in the museum slash restaurant that Vicki Vale goes on her date with the Joker <laughs> in, which was another thing that was like quite interesting to me, the idea of a restaurant museum. I don't think I've ever heard of that before. And, and how, come, <laughs> how come Alfred just waltzes Vicky Vale into the Batcave to talk to Bruce Wayne. Can you explain that to me? No, that, that's another thing that's fascinating is um, not only that scene, but the scene immediately following that Batman just goes and drives off and kills like 30 people in the Ace Chemical Factory <laughs> by blowing it up. But there's no like detective work or exposition that says why he's going there. He just kind of has a, a relationship defining chat with Kim Basinger and then drives to a chemical factory and kills 30 people and blows it up. So, sorry, that's just my opinion. I think those movies were terrible, and I don't think a good Batman movie came along until uh, the Christian Bale one. That, that's fair to have that opinion. Um, <laughs> I personally have – I like Val Kilmer as Batman. or As Batman, I don't like him as Bruce Wayne as much. But I think Forever has some redeeming qualities – in hindsight, but that's a different conversation for a different day. <laughs> Whatever. Well, I just wanted to bring it, wanted to bring it back to fandom really quickly because the schedule for the next, um, 
the next day, which is actually Saturday, September 12th, is already up online. And if um, you're just browsing the schedule, there's definitely a lot more a lot more panels that are specifically comic book related. There's panels on the Joker War, on Batman Three Jokers. Um, there's actually panels. Um, one that I'm actually kind of excited to watch myself is um, a panel called I'm Latin X. What's your superpower? Um, But uh, there actually seems to be a lot of panels specifically comic book related. Um, There's a heavy dose of TV and movie as well, but um, they're not completely ignoring comics. And um, I think that, uh, I I mean, there's even a a spotlight on the, uh, the young adult Teen Titans book that came out this last year that was really, really good. Um, it's a teen, teen Titans series, actually. So um, I think that uh, for comic readers, they'll definitely find stuff that is pertinent to them and their interests in this next day. That's good to Wait, hear. For me, what, what's, what's a Teen Titans book called? It is called, well, the Teen Titans. Um, Cami Garcia um, actually is working on specific titular books on a lot of the individual characters. I've read Raven. Um, also, after that was Beast Boy. Um, but there, she was basically working on YA books. It, it's a novel, graphic novel series, and each one was going to focus on a different, a different member of the Teen Titans. Okay, great, because they're canceling Teen Titans. Teen Titans is one of my uh, my fandoms, <laughs> and um, I'm <laughs> a little at a loss on uh, what yeah. to replace yeah. that with. So I will I check think, these um, out. I think I had mentioned that I was kind of upset about that, too, because a friend of ours, friend of the shop, was the writer. But it turns out that he I, – I looked. He's not writing it anymore. I don't know the person who's writing it now, but uh, previously – um, the new arc that started a couple of years ago, was, um, it was being written by Adam Glass, who is a friend of the shop, friend of ours. And I guess at some point he probably got busy with Hollywood stuff and he stepped away. And I, I'm sorry, you can probably tell me, Joe, but I don't know who the writer on it is now, now that it's getting canceled. I don't know the name of the writer off the top of my head. There was definitely, I know, I did know, I did know that they switched writers um, and you definitely noticed the change in mm-hmm. the style. There were some arcs that kind of got left behind probably about, I want to say half a year back. There's definitely been a change in a character. And since I'm then. sure the but, tone as well. Yeah. The way the team Titan book has gone since rebirth has been very disappointing because the first 20 issues were actually good. I really liked them and they featured Calderon as Aqualad and um, he came out in those stories and a lot of people I think are blaming that for why they rebooted uh-huh. Teen Titans and brought in a new team at issue 21, Yeah, which is very unfortunate if that's true. And but the thing is, the new team came in, and the new team was really cool. I've been enjoying that as well. Um, so it's just it's it's always disappointing when a book like Teen Titans goes away for a while. Uh, I'm sure it'll be back though at some point. Well, so uh, Joe, I know you wanted to ask before we get into uh, 
interviewing our guest here, I know you wanted to ask us about Three Jokers and how that did for us. Yeah, how did Three Jokers go for you guys? Uh, interestingly enough, our DC books this week, uh, this is a kind of like a, a regular complaint from a lot of shops. We got our DC books late. As most people know, DC has been pushing for their books to go on sale on Tuesdays instead of Wednesdays. And a lot of times we have been getting our books uh, late and getting them on Wednesdays and having to scramble to get the books all organized and into people's pools and on the shelves before we open on Wednesdays. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were even try scrambling, trying to do it while we were open on a Wednesday. So uh, we had a lot of people coming in and calling on Tuesday saying, do you have three jokers? Can I come in and buy it? And we had to tell them. Uh, sorry, but we don't have our DC books. And some of them would get indignant and say, what do you mean you don't have your DC books? DC says that they're supposed to be on sale on Tuesdays. And, okay, well, I don't know what to tell you. We don't have them yet. We'll have them tomorrow. Uh, so on Wednesday, when they went on sale, I think we did really well. I mean, we had quite a bit that we ordered and um, we still had some left for Tuesday and Friday, which I wasn't there. Kristen was, but I think sales were pretty brisk all week. Is that right? Yeah, we had people coming in on both Wednesdays. Oh, I was there all week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I I had people coming in all week asking for it. I was just surprised that we had any left. I mean, I know you said that we ordered big, but the truth of the matter is there were 15 covers and we only had about six, maybe seven. Um, and we still had some on the wall. So um, I was actually expecting it to be a lot um, bigger than it was, but I do agree that we had a lot of missed sales on Tuesday. And um, unfortunately, if they were able to get that somewhere else, they probably did. Yeah. I also think that if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic and dealing with uh, lower customer turnout at the moment, I think we would have sold through everything that we ordered this past week, most definitely. Actually, I'm going to ask you, have you noticed that you're being shorted on hot books? Because um, I know that's been a common complaint since the new distribution deal started from shops. <laughs> I don't think that there's been any hot books come out that we've been shorted on. I think that uh, we may not be getting all our numbers that we've ordered. But uh, as of yet, we have not been shorted uh, an entire title and all copies as of yet. But I've heard the same thing from other um, other shops as well, that some were saying, in fact, we had gotten calls on Tuesday uh, from a couple of shops saying that um, they did get their DC books, but they didn't get any of their copies of Three Jokers. So, wow. yeah, and this is uh, local to um, Southern California that um, these shops were calling from. So um, there's been some shops have, that have reported that. Thankfully, we were fine. I have noticed, so going back to the Tuesday thing, I've noticed that shops around here where I live at have uh, instead just said, they've de developed an attitude of, we don't care what DC wants. We're going to put them out on Wednesday with the rest of the books. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I think that's a fine attitude to have too. I'm, I, it's the Tuesday thing befuddles me because it's just like people have a hard enough time stocking one day a week. Why would you have two stock days a week? Exactly. We want to create a second stock day for people, just make more work for everybody. And it also makes it impossible to have that second stock day if you don't get the books early enough in time, you know, to, to 
do the polls and get them organized and get them out. So if you don't get your books and your DC books until the end of the day on Tuesday or Wednesday morning, then it's, it's a moot point. And like you said, uh, on Tuesdays, we, that's when we open up uh, all the boxes. We organize all the stock. We, we separate out uh, the books for the pull customers and get them all organized and then get the remainder out on the shelf in an organized fashion. Um, that's pretty much, that's a big day for us. And you're asking me to do that twice a week and have, uh, twice the amount of staff, um, on say, I guess on a Monday, we would do it on a Monday on a Monday that we would normally, uh, not have and have to pay employees, uh, extra at that point and do the all. No, forget it. We do it all in one day on Tuesday. If they're out in time, and you come in on a Tuesday where they're out on the shelf, fine, we'll sell it to you. But don't get mad if you come in on a Tuesday morning looking for three jokers. And we haven't even finished, anywhere near finished, our, all our work yet for those new books. Uh, I'm sorry, but we're not going to do it just because DC says, oh, we're going to, you can sell them on Tuesdays. Well, okay, that's great, but we don't have it ready. So too bad. Yeah. I thought it was a nice little touch on the back cover of Three Jokers to put the playing card back there. The updated playing card. Nice little shot to uh, the killing joke. Um, yeah, they also had uh, those uh, cards, actual cards as promos to give out that retailers could order. So we had them by the counter and, you know, you pick up a copy of Three Jokers or whatever. If you just want one, um, they're there as a giveaway. Yeah, that's what my LCS did is they just stuck them on the counter and there was a big stack. I didn't go in until Friday and there was still a huge stack of them. Yeah. But so, yeah, no. Yeah. So uh, three Joker sales, good. Their new distribution model as far as getting stuff on to shops on time, maybe not so good. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so that's three Jokers. So um, I don't want to take up too much time talking about other stuff because we do have a guest here that I'm actually very eager to talk to. So today we have Kristen Parez with us, who is the co-owner and co-manager of Heidi Ho Comics in Santa Monica, and who, in my opinion, is the smartest, sexiest, and most awesome retailer in the entire world. (laughs) And I say that because uh, she is also my wife. So Kristen, thank you for being on the show. We got a lot of questions about uh, what it's like being a woman of color who is also a manager and co-owner of a comic book shop and what your journey is like. So say hello. Well, thank you for having me today on your podcast. It actually is like I'm always on your podcast because I can always hear at least what Eddie is saying uh, when he's recording from the other room. And and when I go into the kitchen to make dinner or grab something to drink, I can hear what he's talking about. So um, I'm always kind of participating from behind the scenes. But um, thank you so much for inviting me and having me on today and actually um being able to speak my own voice and have people hear what I have to say. Cause I'm always, I'm always yelling things in the background, even though if you guys don't hear me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She's telling me where I'm wrong and what I said that was wrong all the time. So Kristen, your journey I think is very interesting because you pretty much went from zero to 60. You, when I bought the shop with my, with our other two partners, uh, you agreed to come in and manage the shop with me, basically leaving your your other career, your other longtime career, and 
coming in and managing the shop with me. And at the time, knowing nothing about comics, just basically wanting a new and different challenge in your life. So um, you came in and basically tried to learn the ropes with me because we both went in kind of blind, not knowing really what it takes to run a business. And we had to learn it all together on the fly. But also you had to learn pretty much all that you know now about comics. So kind of tell us what it was like for you to step into the shop as uh, a co-manager and where you were at at that point in your life. Yes. So 100% accurate. I went from knowing nothing about managing a retail um, business um, to being there on a day-to-day basis and knowing nothing about comics. And I don't want to say nothing because that's not actually accurate. I had been reading Walking Dead uh, on a consistent basis, on a monthly basis. And when we purchased the store, uh, gosh, it was probably after 100, but um, not too far after that. Um, So I was still reading it on a a weekly basis. I had finished uh, all the Walking Dead I could read until I caught up. And then Eddie started uh, recommending other books to me. So I had read all of Why the Last Man. I'd read Geez, uh, what else had I read? I read all of uh, Preacher. I read all of Scalped, uh, mostly all series that were done that I could just uh, start and finish and not be in the same sad space as I was with Walking Dead waiting on a month to month basis. But yes, I started um, Heidi Ho with very little knowledge of any other comic uh, characters. very little knowledge of any history of comics and it was definitely a learning experience my my past career was actually working in the nonprofit sector and um, specifically the er- latest position that I had uh, been working was working with girls involved in the juvenile justice system uh, and working with them as they were re-entering into back into the community and helping them to um, basically not recidivate and be successful. And so I I left that to take a break because I was severely um, just burnt out. And we came upon this this opportunity to purchase a comic shop was like, well, that sounds kind of cool. And, um, you know, there, it can't be as traumatizing as working with these poor young girls that deal with gangs and, and assault and trauma all the time. And I make the joke that, um, now that who knew that there was so much actual drama involved in the comic book industry. (laughs) Um, but yes, uh, I, I basically, had to um, really dig in deep and start reading a lot of freaking comics. And that's exactly what I did. Um, back when Convergence started, Whoa. that that amazing DC property, <laughs> Convergence, I started reading every single book, not just DC, but every single number one that came out that week. And then if I liked the series, the next time it came out, I would read number two in addition to 
excuse me, any number ones that I liked. And you can only imagine how quickly my reading pile began to be. So that's pretty much how I started um, learning about comics, because I honestly was just tired of not knowing the answers to questions that customers were asking me or having to look it up on Google or having to ask Eddie or any other person that was there. Um, I wanted to know the information for myself. So that's basically what I did. I have to imagine, too, that you having to learn everything so that when customers would come in um, and you can answer their questions, I also have to imagine that there's an extra incentive to learn a lot of this stuff about what co- uh, which comic series are coming out and what storylines are this or what characters are that, because you are kind of equally ju- are doubly judged as a woman in a comic shop. Is that true? Oh, definitely. Um, in the beginning, I admittedly so I didn't know the answers to the questions. So I would turn around and customers, customers would see me turn around and ask somebody else that was there. But the more I learned and the more confident I became, um, the more I would um, contribute to uh, conversations or answer customers' questions. And uh, multiple times I had customers, um, male customers, ask me a question. And when I gave them an answer, watch them turn around and approach a male um, employee and ask them the exact same question. Now, the joke was on them because usually I was working with uh, the, the usually the male employee I was working with was someone who was more um, knowledgeable about Magic the Gathering and gaming. And they were like, I don't know, you got to ask her. So I felt vindicated <laughs> <laughs> when that would happen. But yes, that happened to me multiple times. No, that's a that's a major problem in uh just comics in general is that gatekeeping absolutely so and with- uh, i know you guys have worked really hard to uh take that out of your shop so that's really good yeah one thing that I-, I really like about what about you guys yeah when we took over the shop one of the mottos that we really wanted to stress uh to our customers was that um comics are for everyone and i think Kristen really has run away with that. And definitely I'd like to hear her take on um, that motto and what it meant to her. And as far as what she did to try to really bring that home. So like maybe many other women who are listening to the podcast or other members of marginalized communities who may be listening, um, you may have had negative experiences going into an LCS. And before I owned Heidi Ho, um, I dated a a fanboy. I dated someone who was into comics. Uh, And he was collecting the entire run of Amazing Spider-Man all the way one through 700, including Amazing Fantasy 15. Uh, So... Is this me or were you dating somebody else that was doing this? <laughs> it was you. Okay. So I would um, I would sneak into the closet where he had his wish list of all the books that he had and didn't have. And I would jot down the numbers that he hadn't acquired yet. And I would go out to local comic shops and I would, um, you know, try to purchase some of those missing numbers. And um, those were some of the most horrible experiences I've ever had. 
ever walking into a retail shop in my entire life. And there was one experience in particular where I left that shop and I was in tears in my car and not because they hurt my feelings or because, you know, what they said was particularly harmful to me, but because I was so mad that they had the audacity to treat me the way that I did, that they did when I was in there wanting to spend money and asking questions and, you know, didn't know anything about comics. And the way that I was treated was just, just horrendous. And so I, have held on to that and have remembered that. And when I was put into position where I was managing Heidi Ho, my number one goal was to never allow anybody, no matter who they were, what groups they belong to, what they look like, anybody walking into my shop to ever allow them to feel the way that I was made to to feel in that one particular situation. And so specific, I mean, I greet everyone. I train my employees to greet everyone, but specifically when there is a woman that walks in, um, I will come out from behind the counter and I will approach her and I will personally greet her and ask her, uh, if she needs any help and to just let her know that if she has any questions, feel free to ask me because just that little step, um, I think shows that this is a safe place and you're welcome here. And um, I just really have worked to towards making people feel comfortable in the shop. If that uh, is just greeting them when they come in or especially having um, having books that are displayed out um, that are books that you wouldn't necessarily think would be in a comic book shop. I mean, we've had um, Black History Month displays. We've had LGBTQ um, Pride Month displays. We've had Latinx displays. We have tried to really make the shop welcoming to all groups. And I think that um, comics are for everyone. And there is no reason why anybody should feel apprehensive about walking to any comic book shop, no matter where they are. And I just wish that that was, that was true. When we first took over the shop, uh, what would you say that the percentage of male to female customers was at that point? Uh, geez, it was very, very skewed. Um, our shop, when we purchased it, was a mess. <laughs> That's true. It was a mess. It, and unfortunately, the people who were running it, and it was no fault of their own, but they were people who, um, they were young kids in their young 20s, and they actually didn't have a lot of comic book knowledge or experience. And they were kind of just left to their own devices. And um, and so it wasn't really that much of an inviting place, not just personally, but uh, physical space. There was junk. And I am not lying when I say junk everywhere. The floor was so dirty. Um, I'm not making this up. There were half eaten sandwiches in between the books on the shelf. And it was uh, it's all true. there were homeless people who were camped out in the corners and would come in every single day because they had just been allowed to do that for so long. And so um, 
honestly, uh, the if I was to say percentage, I would probably say 70, 30, maybe. Um, I think you're being too generous. <laughs> honestly, I think it's probably more like 85, 15 or maybe 90, 10. <laughs> I remember uh, if a woman would come into the shop back then, they would stand by the door and peek in almost kind of uh, timidly and trepidatiously. And eventually she might walk in, but you can tell just by the way she was walking around that she was unsure of where she was or if she wanted to talk to anybody. And you could tell that they were completely uncomfortable. And um, thinking back to that, how would you describe the way that kind of scenario happens now? Yeah, well, when we first purchased the business, we were physically located in a completely different location than we are now. And to give you a visual, um, the the initial location was an old army surplus warehouse. And whatever you might imagine an old army surplus warehouse to look times it by 10 and add no windows and cinder block (laughs) walls and just this cold and uninviting feeling. And that's exactly where Heidi Ho was. And so the fact that women even walked in, uh, period, (laughs) uh, I give them lots of credit because you couldn't even really tell what the store was, even though it said Heidi Ho Comics on the outside, most people didn't even look up. And so um, that environment to where we are now, where there's natural lighting and just everything is nice and clean and the retail space is just more conducive to retail and being personable um, and having people just walk by and being able to see what the store is through the windows is just a huge change and difference. Uh, And also we try to have books in the, I've had multiple women actually walk into the store because of the books that they've seen in the um, display facing outside. Um, And actually that's kudos to our employee, Jen, who always tries to keep it fresh and put things out there that she um, thinks would be interesting interesting and um, enjoyable to all kinds of different people. And we've had people come in and say, yeah, I saw this in, I saw this in the, um, in the window. What is it about? Or can you tell me about it? Or do you have more stuff like it? So um, just the, the actual physical space that we're in right now, brick and mortar is just like so much more inviting to all people. So I think that maybe you're not giving yourself uh, enough credit because I've seen in the beginning of the shop, uh, women customers comprising a very small percentage of our sales to where it is now in our new location, probably somewhere closer to almost maybe even as much as half of our customers um, being women. Way more uh, women on our pull list than there was when we started. And um, even um, the magic community, seeing thankfully, more women coming and playing. And I got to say that that is a, um, a huge testament to both what you and our employee Jennifer have done in that spot in, with that store. And um, tell us a little bit more about some of the programs uh, and events and things that you've done that have really helped to bring in maybe more underrepresented fans into the shop and just into comics altogether. 
Well, for me, it really comes down to the fact that there has to be a multifaceted approach to representation. It's not just about representation. Representation is super important. Don't get me wrong. And I, I'm glad that, um, there are um, people of color and people of the LGBT community that are creators and characters in um, in comics. But when it comes down to it, the more important um, or may- maybe not more, but equally important facet to um, to this is access. Um, it's all nice and good to have representation, but if people do not have access to these comics, that's an issue. That's a problem. Um, you know, having having people come into our shop who might not necessarily ever have felt comfortable coming into a shop because we are offering Pride Con. Um, is a big deal. Like uh, having a space where we had 15 creators all at once coming, all um, all members of the LGBTQ plus community. And, you know, they were all there showing what they had done and had their books and had their prints and had their had their um, art pieces that they had made and making that accessible to the community as a whole, um, bringing Latinx creators into Heidi Ho and having a party around that. We had a, a, a quinceanera themed party around a, uh, an indie book called Quince, which is all about a Latinx girl who gets her superpowers on her 15th birthday. And in the Latino uh, culture, that's a big deal. The the quinceanera is a big deal. And so we actually dressed up Heidi Ho like a quinceanera. We had tamales and um, <laughs> we had rice. We had a DJ dressed up in, uh, in uh, fancy DJ regalia. And we just had fun. And we invited people and they came and they were so excited to come and celebrate not just comics but their culture and it felt accessible to them and i think that like i said having displays and just making it seem like people belong is so important i mean we are in a area of los angeles that i mean there there's no way to to like skirt around the issue it's a a highly um, white populated, um, high income area. You gotta be, I'm sorry, you gotta be rich to live in Santa Monica. Ask me how I know, because, you know, we, the shop is in Santa Monica and even us trying to, as business owners, we couldn't afford to live there. Yeah. We tried. So, so yeah, we can afford to own a business there. We can't afford to live there, (laughs) but, um, probably three years into us owning the shop, A really cool thing happened. Um, The Metro actually extended and ended right in Santa Monica. And so we were able to really piggyback on that and be like, you know what? This is creating access to 
um, to Santa Monica, but also to our shop, to a lot of people who never had access over here before, to people from the east side who didn't necessarily come out to Santa Monica very much because of the fact that, um, you know, who wants to sit in an hour and a half traffic just to go 20 miles? So when the metro was extended to Santa Monica, that created access to our shop to a lot of people. And then when we moved, actually, the new shop is literally a block away from that metro station. Santa Monica itself is a high trafficked area for tourists, um, not just um, tourists from out of the country, but tourists from out of the county, out of the state. And so to be able to really be in a location that people are able to come into um, when they are visiting is very advantageous to us. And not all LCSs have that benefit. And so I really try to capitalize on that and to remember that when we are purchasing books and when we are highlighting books and when we're hand selling books. And Eddie mentioned um, our our magic community. Um, I have no I, I had no idea what the heck magic even was when I um, started working at the shop and um, magic the gathering um, is a game that probably brings out up to close to 50% of our revenue of the shop. And same thing, I was tired of not knowing what the heck was going on when it came to magic. So I learned magic. And I began to notice that I was the only woman along with Jen, who I I, I strong armed along with me to learn the game. Um, I We were the only two women who would be at pre-releases. Um, and maybe one or two others who were there Um as well but i mean if you want to talk percentages it was like 0.01 yeah it's still kind of bad in that sense not a lot of women come for pre-release um but you know definitely more than what there was in the very beginning which was none yeah so what i did was i started a lady planeswalker group and i started um doing that one day a week and it basically was just a day that anybody who was looking for a less competitive entry into the game could come, but specifically I called it Lady Planeswalkers so that women would feel comfortable. And I honestly am super proud of that group because what it actually turned into was a a time and a place where transgender women came and felt comfortable playing magic. And if I would not have ever started that um, Lady Planeswalker group, I would never have even met these people. And I love Wednesday nights and loved seeing women come in and also other players who didn't feel comfortable in the competitive environment of a pre-release or of a draft night come and be able to enjoy the game in a casual environment. And to me, that was providing access. There was nothing like that before, and I created it, and people came. And so I had my own little field of dreams moment <laughs> with, <laughs> with uh, Lady Planeswalker. And that's just really what I my hope is for all, all LCSs, is that you, yes, you you have to highlight representation, and you have to, to um 
to let people know that it's there, but it's does no, it does no good unless you provide people access to it. So um, I just really hope that that continues to grow in the industry. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that group right there is actually one thing that I can point to and say, my wife did that and be proud of what you've achieved in that. So kudos to you on that. Being a comic shop owner in itself is kind of a, a, a wacky thing. And I got to imagine being a woman comic shop owner and manager has got to uh, facilitate some crazy events or incidences. Or Is there anything that comes to memory that you can think of, either good or bad, that you look back on over the last almost six years of being part of the shop where you think, oh, my God, I can't believe that happened? <laughs> Well, one of the more misogynistic things that happened was one day I answered the phone and this person asked to speak to the owner. And I just said, oh, well, how can I help you? And they said, I'd like to speak to the owner. And I said, OK, how can I help you? And they said, well, who are you, their secretary? I was <laughs> I I did not mince words. I said that is the most sexist thing that you could have ever said to me. I am the owner. I was so mad. <laughs> and I actually I've actually gotten that kind of thing, not so much now, but in the beginning when I was brand new, um, I think even regulars were testing me out and testing the waters because who is this new person coming in? Um I even had a couple of people come in and be like asking me for certain favors or whatever. And I'd be like, I'm sorry, we can't do that. And they would hit me with, well, you know, I know the owner. I'm like, (laughs) 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 and, and they were specifically referring to Eddie and I was like, okay. Uh, And they would just continue on that, um, (laughs) on that on that defense of whatever it was they were asking for. And, and I would be like, okay, I understand. Yes. I know him too. That's my husband. (laughs) (laughs) There's actually another memory that comes to my mind that I think is a really, really positive memory um, that I'd like to hear that I always tell people, but I like to hear you tell it. And it's uh, the moon girl devil dinosaur story. Yes. So actually, one of the things that I tried to do in the beginning when I was trying to facilitate the growth of uh, women customers into the shop is I ordered a lot of those image firsts of Bitch Planet. And um, it so happened that we had a lot of extras of um, single issues of Moon Girl. And so I had would keep those behind the counter for when, you know, people would come in. And um, I highly recommend that for any other LCS uh, managers or owners, Um, just really having a woman be able to leave the shop who with something in her hand, you know, who might have come in, never read a comic before, not have any idea of where to start, but to have a number one and a number one with a feminist agenda uh, and just a really amazing book all around, I think is a really great way to um, to really encourage women to uh, go to LCSs. But in this particular 
situation, there was a man that came into the shop and he was doing his, you know, his regular comic book shopping. He was going through the bins. He was looking around and he had a little daughter with him that probably was maybe around six or seven. And um, the father and the daughter were both black. And right away, I looked at the daughter and, and I noticed she looked like Lunella. She had the little pom-poms on her head and she um, just reminded me of Moon Girl. And so, so um, she was kind of bored sitting there as I noticed a lot of uh, kids, not just girls, but also boys and also significant others um, and come in when they come in with their comic uh, partner, comic loving partners. <laughs> And so um, I started to engage her and I asked her, do you know who you look like? And she was very shy. She didn't want to engage with me or answer me. But I said, you look just like Moon Girl. And I had an ish, a copy of one of the single issues and I showed it to her. And the look on her face, she just lit up and she was so excited. And she's like, oh, my gosh, that looks like me. And I'm like, yes, it does. Uh, and I was able to give that to her. And her dad was actually super excited as well, because I don't know if he hadn't thought that she would be interested in comics or if he just didn't know how to approach it. But the fact that she was showing interest he was like, oh, you know, we're going to go home and read it and we'll come back and we'll buy you some more. And so that to me was um, a really touching and, and telling um, situation of how all it takes is for you to engage your customers and to really um, show them that they are represented. But some people um, may not ever know that unless you provide them the access to that information. That, that right there is probably my all-time favorite story. I, I was there when it happened, and I was able to witness it, and I thought that was just absolutely fantastic. Um, you as a shop owner and manager, like I said in the beginning, has definitely been a journey. Uh, we've talked about how you've come from zero, but we should talk about how you've gotten to 60. There's <laughs> a lot that you've achieved, I think, over those almost six years of being there with me running and owning that shop from meeting and befriending a lot of comic book creators, uh, publishers along the way, but also um, getting a certain amount of knowledge and wisdom about the comic industry and what you like and what you want to kind of like um, uh, portray, not just in yourself, but also what you want to push forward for people to learn about. And where I'm getting at is the podcast that you started with our employee, Jen, and a third friend, Sarah, and what that podcast is kind of what it means to you and what it has turned into. So definitely kind of tell us a little bit about how that started and where it all went. Well, the podcast started as a very vague idea of... Pro again, providing access to Latinx comic fans, um, providing them access to a list of characters, comic characters, superheroes that they could read about that reflected and mirrored who they were. Uh, and that idea came 
from the fact that I had people coming into the shop asking me about Latinx characters. And I honestly, it was during a time that I didn't know very many Latinx characters. And I and you actually thought that the podcast probably wouldn't even last very long because you thought, how many, how many Latin characters or how many Latin creators are there really even out there? I mean, how many can we even talk about? Yes. Yeah, so when I finally uh, approached Jen and Sarah with this vague idea I had, um, we all kind of laughed and we made a list and we all kind of laughed because the list didn't even fill a page. And we said, okay, well, um, after we're done with this, what are we going to do? And it was kind of like, well, I guess we'll just figure it out because the reality is uh, that the reason why customers were asking me where uh, the Latinx characters were is because there weren't that many, especially title characters. Um, and so um, when you really look at even the list that we made, a lot of them were just ancillary characters that, um, you know, showed up here and there. And we also were just looking at the big two. We didn't really know much about any other Latinx characters at all. And so when we started doing the podcast, the very first podcast we did um, is uh, a podcast that we focused on the quintessential Latinx creators, the Hernandez brothers. And we did a Love and Rockets episode. And um, from there, we actually hit the big superheroes. We did um, we did Miles Morales and then we did America and then we did a couple of other like indies that the characters were Latinx, but the creators might not have been. And we just were kind of going along and doing, you know, that with um, books that we kind of already knew when the opportunity to table at a comic expo in East Los Angeles arose. And I said, hey, I thought it would be a good idea to um, kind of this be our coming out party. And so we had a table at, at the time it was called East LA Comic Con. Now it's called East LA Cape. Um, but uh, East LA Comic Con, we had a table and we were tabling for, gosh, I think it was a really long day. It was like seven to eight hours. <laughs> but when we looked around the rest of the convention hall, uh, it wasn't even a convention hall, it was a small little room in the middle of August and it was so hot. The The actual aha moment that we had of, oh my God, look at all of these Latinx creators and oh my God, look at all of these Latinx books with Latinx characters and Latinx stories. And we were just like flabbergasted and floored. And we were like, look at all this freaking content. And so we just started talking to people and making connections and making uh, starting relationships and making friendships. And it honestly, we have never looked back. There are so many Latinx indie creators out there. There are so many indie books that are out there. I mean, if you just go on to Kickstarter right now, this very moment while you're listening and you look it up in the comic section, you'll find so many. And it's just so amazing that 
It's amazing in a good way that they exist. And it's amazing in a really bad negative way that we had no freaking idea. And there's so many other people who have no idea. And so that is why I started Comadacy Comics is to provide this information and access to comic readers, to um, Latinx fans to say, look, there is all this content out there specifically created for you. And so I really love that Comadacy Comics has really found its home in the comic community. And it we've been so welcomed into the community as a whole, not just the Latinx part of the community. We've been invited to do panels at San Diego Comic-Con. I mean, like, that's freaking amazing. Like, for some, I feel like I'm the, like, um, the little farm girl who came from Kansas and stepped <laughs> off the bus in Los Angeles and became, like, a star. Like, that's what I, I parallel that to. Like, the fact that we were asked to be in a San Diego Comic-Con panel was just, like, a a dream come true for people who know anything about San Diego Comic-Con being the, the mecca of cons for comics. And so it's just been really amazing. We were invited to become part of Starburns Industries podcast um, uh, channel. And so they actually uh, host our podcast and they um, they support us and they really like have a um very like forward idea they have a network called the period network which is specifically for podcasts that are just by women for everyone and so our podcast is mixed in with uh into that network but to have the support of starburns industry which if you may or may not know the publishing company who does rick and morty and also um what's the guy's name he was the ha- not hamill hammond Har- harman harman Mar- harman yeah he he was the the founder of starburns oh yeah I, well, I was gonna jump in and say for those who don't know starburn is most known for basically being the company behind rick and morty yeah so it turns out, unknown to you, when you started this podcast and started to do uh, shows with it and get the word about the podcast out there, it turns out that there was actually a large audience for not just this kind of podcast, but a large audience for Latin-themed content that, yes. that was very hungry for it. Yeah, that was one of the things that I think, <laughs> even to this day, I'm not going to lie, that it shocks me. I'll be at a convention, I'll have just walked off a panel, or even just literally walking around, and people, um, I will talk, be talking to people, and I'll mention the podcast, and they'll say, oh yeah, I listen to that, and it floors me every time, because I, I tell the girls, and they laugh, because they, they feel similarly, that... The podcast is kind of like, oh, we hang out and we talk about comics once a week, but we never really think about people listening to <laughs> us, but they do. And I mean, it's a, it's really amazing being on a panel and talking about Latinx representation and having the audience full of Latinx fans and seeing them shake their heads when we talk about our experiences and about, you know, what we see um, as a marginalized group and how we want to be able to provide more um, representation and more access to 
fans and to the community as a whole. And I think that it's really something that I didn't realize was going to have as big of an impact as it really did. And the fact that it has um, really makes me super proud of what we do and what we continue to provide for, um, for comic readers. Awesome. Well, Kristen, I want to say thank you for taking the time to talk to us and tell us a little bit about what it's like being a woman of color, uh, manager and owner of a comic shop and what your experiences have been like, both negative and positive. Hopefully it's more positive than negative, but I want to thank you for the insight that you've shared and the stories that you've told us. And it's also, I have to say, a pleasure to work with you on a somewhat daily basis in the shop. And I'm still hoping that you don't contact HR every time I pat your booty while I'm <laughs> behind the register with you. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I don't want to get in trouble for that, but thank you. And again, thank you for taking the time to talk to us and tell us your story. Well, thank you for having me. It was fun. And I look forward to listening to the uh, to the interview. And I look forward to actually participating in the background for the next the next one that you do. <laughs> yeah, no, you're welcome to come back whenever you want, Kristen. Um, that, that was a lot of fun. Um, actually, you know what? You reminded me of something I wanted to bring up that really pissed me off that kind of flew under the radar this week. And that is that uh, new mutants co-creator, Bob MacLeod. Oh yes. The, the new mutants movie came out, which is insane that they're putting movies out in the current climate. I don't know what they're thinking, but it's been pretty uh, historically panned. Uh, last I checked, it was like 20% fresh on rotten tomatoes oh from the critics and 48% from the fans. And anything under 50% from the fans is is extremely bad. Yeah. But yeah. they also they also, you know, Bob McLeod, he designed all the characters right. in the New Mutants. And they whitewash he his complaint he complained that they whitewashed his characters, mm-hmm. but they also had the audacity to misspell his name in the credits, which is yes, I saw that. <laughs> yeah. And I had I had mentioned um, this to you, Joe, that I can feel his pain because uh, years ago when I worked on that Stanley documentary that came out, I put in a lot of long hours working on that thing with them and and just just the amount of dedication and time I put into it. And then when it premiered at San Diego Comic-Con and I was just aghast to see my name butchered (laughs) in the credits as well. So I know what it feels like. And to just the idea that... All the, these people associated with the movie, the producers and everything, they saw me on a daily basis. They saw me all the time. And no one even bothered to take the time to make sure my name was even spelled correctly. He was much more gracious about it than I would have been. You should go and check out his social media yeah, post. Yeah, I, I saw and, that. Um, yeah, and no, give it I, a was, bump, I was pissed support. what happened to me. I, I sent a nasty, angry, curse-filled email <laughs> to uh, one of the producers. I, I, I'm... Not proud to say, or maybe I am proud to say. Yeah, I was pissed. I, so I he was, was more gracious than Eddie. We'll say oh, that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I was pissed because these producers knew me on a basis where uh, pretty close, and anything they asked of me, I was there and I did it, and you know above and beyond the call. And then they don't even bother to make sure my name is spelled correctly. So I, I can understand it. 
Yeah. So um, I just wanted to not let that pass without noting that that also <laughs> happened this week. Yeah. Uh, Kristen, Eddie, thank you guys for joining us. Thank you for uh, telling your stories. Uh, we all appreciate it. And um, Kristen, please come back uh, whenever you can. For sure. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for us this week. So uh, that was your peek behind the counters, and we will see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. This show is part of the Geek Nerd Network. Geek Nerd Network. Find more shows like it at geeknerdnetwork.com. This is Jen. Hey, I'm Chelsea, and I'm the battle cry of a thousand angry Branch Davidians. And hey, what's up? My name is Noelle, and I am the ghost of Bill Cooper. And we have a podcast called Freaky Geeks, where you can hear us scream about birds not being real. And Stan Lee being the real-life inspiration for the little girl backwards crab-walking down the stairs in The Exorcist. Find us on all social media and listen to episodes anywhere podcasts are heard.